Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books and Biography. Today I'm speaking with Perry Merling, Professor of International Political Economy at the Pardee School of Global Studies at Boston University. We are discussing his recently published book, Money and Empire, Charles B. Kindleberger and the Dollar System, both a biography of a brilliant 20th century thinker and a history of the emergence of dollar hegemony. Money and Empire sheds light on the nature of money in the global system. Perry, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Happy to be here. Of course, you know it's uh, it's great to to, uh, to talk with you. It's great to meet you. Um, you know, first before before jumping into the book, I should say that uh, you know anyone who finds this conversation interesting should definitely check out your uh, Coursera course on economics of money and banking. Uh, I found it very uh, very useful. Um, but yeah, I, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your intellectual journey. Oh, my journey to this point. Um, well, this is this is actually my fourth book. Um, so it, and it does build on everything that came before, as a matter of fact, um, my journey has always been about trying to understand how the monetary side of the economy works. And I found out in my graduate education at the LSE that economists are kind of puzzled about this, that there's, that the foundations of monetary theory are, are actually in bad shape. And so I decided to devote my life to it. I'm that sort of person. Um, and I, and I decided um, that I needed to go back in economic history to find like, when did people seem to have a handle on this? Um, and so my first book is an attempt to look for, for, for ancestors, I guess. <laughs> and so the money interest in the public interest was, uh, and that's, I guess, where I also kind of found this method of, of doing economics by doing intellectual biography, because it's sort of three, it's three generations, Alan Young, Alvin Hansen, and Ed Shaw. Um, and it's the American institutionalist approach to 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 monetary economics, which is very distinctive and is is not really known um, because most of the stories they sort of begin with Britain or something, you know, and and the, and the Keynesian traditions or something. But the American institutionalists were very interesting because they the U.S. didn't get a central bank until 1913, and yet they had banks, you know, and they had clearing and settlement and checks and, and like, so what's all that about? So they had to ha- understand how the system worked without a, a proper uh, central bank and therefore um, no particular, you know, the connections to the government were different and so forth. And so that's that's where I found my starting point. Um, and, uh, and that book... Um, did pretty well, um, got me tenure, um, and it got me started on the road. Um, and then I started teaching money and banking. Um, just uh, and and uh, and the MOOC that you mentioned um, came out of that. I taught economics and money banking for 15 years before INET um, sort of uh, filmed that in the fall of 2012. Um, so I would tell your 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 listeners also just to, it, I think it still stands up as an analytical frame, but it's ten years out of date. And so my fifth book, okay, is going to be an update of that um, coming soon to a bookstore near you as soon as I write it. Um, but I realized after I finished that first book, um, 
which is American monetary thought from 1920 to 1970, those three guys, you know, but that the story after 1970 was really about finance, the rise of modern finance. And so I had to teach myself modern finance. And so I did that by writing a biography of, of finance and uh, through Fisher Black. So that was my second book, Fisher Black and the Revolutionary Idea of Finance. Um, and then came the financial crisis and Princeton Press came and said, you know, can you write us a book about the financial crisis? And so I wrote New Lombard Street in six months, um, which is basically came out of the course, the Coursera course. Um, and uh, and when I, now I'm coming to this present book. <laughs> oh, so when that book was done, um, and I liked that book, um, but I re it was sort of a biography of the Fed. So I was still following this biographical kind of way of writing, but in this case, an institution, not an individual. Um, when I came to the end of that book and it was published, I realized one big problem with this is that hanging the story of the global financial crisis on the life arc of the, of the Fed kind of doesn't do it justice because this was a crisis of the global dollar system, not really of the domestic. And so we, I need to to write this book again, the same sort of arc from 1913 to the present, but now as a, as a biography of the dollar. So I was writing, that's where I started. It was a biography of the dollar. Um, and uh, the, uh, but then I found Kindleberger and I said, oh, I can I I know Kindleberger really from my first book because he had he had written some things with Hansen and I interviewed him in his retirement home about Hansen so I he came from that world that's the point he came from this American institutionalist tradition which I felt like I knew you know better than maybe anybody else particularly for monetary economics certainly that was my expertise so I felt okay this is a nice entry point and his dates are perfect he was born in 1910. <laughs> so the Fed was born in 1913. And, you know, he started at MIT in 1948. Bretton Woods was 1944. So you you can really follow, you, you mentioned in your lead-in that this is a biography of Kindleberger and a kind of biography of, of the rise of dollar hegemony. Um, we'll talk about that word, hegemony, um, in, in, in a moment. Um, so that's why it can be though both of those things, because the dates kind of line up and the and the stories intertwine because he is he he sees his life project um i came to believe i i didn't i didn't start with that idea he sees his life project as kind of doing for the global money system what his teachers at columbia uh had done for uh, what 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 willis um h p h parker willis had done for for the united states you know creating unifying this disparate little uh, monetary system and creating a central bank um, at in in New York, um, the the New York Fed um, and and the Board of Governors and so forth. And so the arguments to him from an early age, the arguments for why it's a good idea to have kind of a unified monetary system within the United States, are the same arguments for why it's a good idea to have a unified monetary system in in the world. Um, it's a little harder because we don't have world government. Um, and that's the challenge, and that's the challenge that he that he accepted and spent his life kind of working working toward. Um, I wanted to write this fourth book because it seemed to me clear. I had already done money, I'd already done finance. It seemed to me international finance was the next thing that I needed to understand in order to understand the full monetary and financial side. So I spent ten. That's why it took me ten years because I had to master another field. Um, 
And so the story, um, you, you mentioned that there are these two threads in the book. There's actually a third one too, which is a history of economic thought, okay? That it's it's talking about where did modern international finance come from um, and where what are its shortcomings maybe um, too? And where, because Kindleberger was a critic of it um, from the outside. And so it lets you see you know, that there are other ways of thinking about the world than Mundell Fleming or the things that are in, in the in the textbooks. Um, that because he's coming from a period before all that stuff, um, before ISLM, you know, before the stuff you learned in college. Um, and uh, and he and he knew how to think uh, without writing down models or or, you know, running regressions on a computer. And so that was uh, it's an old style. Um, but it turned out to be it's really I, I must say I'm very impressed by him that he was. It's a very uh, uh, robust style, um, and he's able to roll with the punches and have an active scholarly life um, for a long, long time, <laughs> even as economics followed this fad and then that fad and the other. Uh, so for, for a book like this, you need somebody who is a spider in the middle of the web, you know, so that they are connected. And uh, and he was, he was great that way because he had these three successive careers, um, and he was at MIT. Which is became the center, sort of, of of of, of economics, um, actually probably in the world, um, and uh, he was there before it was that important, um, and uh, and he was also in the State Department, and so so it's a he's a he's a good he's a good person to hang to hang a, a story on. I, I did find um, you know some of the lines that you had quite interesting, uh, you know, seeing almost um, you know ways in which. I, the, just the, maybe the similarities between the two of you, in a sense, um, you know, his kind of approach to economics and his his role uh, in in the broader economic world, and also uh, some of the other work that you've done, just with putting forward, you know, the money view um, as this kind of alternative approach. Um, but you know, it, you you spend in, in the first uh, couple chapters of the book, you talk a little bit about his childhood. I, th I think without getting you know too much in depth that, into depth of that, if people want to learn more about his childhood. You know, you constantly uh, refer to him over and over again. Uh, you know, or, or uh, refer, you know, point out that he was a wasp. Uh, so, uh, you know, what was his childhood like, and and did did his early childhood, his early views, shape things later on? Well, he had a privileged uh, childhood. Um, his father was a sort of big time lawyer in in New York, um, and he went to private school um, and went to the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, I think he was really headed toward a career in international banking. That's kind of what he wanted to do, which which you know, would also have been a privileged life. Um, no one would hire him uh, right right out of right out of undergraduate, um, partly because he didn't know anything, but but also because the depression was just starting then. Um, so the depression was a very important, uh, turning point because his family finances all completely fell apart. So he was basically on his own um, after he graduated from from college um, and had to find his own way. Um, and uh, that led him to do, go to graduate school and then and then central banking, not 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 you know private banking, but central banking at the New York Fed and the BIS. Um, and I think that um, that was a very uh, formative. Uh, experience. Um, central banking is also a very privileged life. As a matter of fact, you know he was traveling first class on the uh, upgraded to first class um, 
when he went to the BIS across the ocean um, because the liner discovered he was from the New York Fed and they they shipped all their gold with that liner. So they they treated him like a celebrity. Um, and uh, but uh, but then World War II intervened, and so that planned life. I think he would have happily spent his life at in Basel, eating well and and dining with with central visiting central bankers. But World War II happened, and he got he managed to get back to the U.S. just in time. And uh, and then and he was the waspy part. You know, he had two admirals in his ancestry, and so I think he felt very much that it was his duty to engage with this war, and so he. He got involved before the U.S. declared war, um, and uh, uh, and was actually kind of miffed when they made him come come home in order to get basic training or whatever. You know that he was uh, so he he then went back, um, and he was uh, he loved working after D Day. He went on on the European continent, traveling with General Bradley. I think those were the highest points of his entire life, um, and. Uh, you know, so I, I I imagine he could be rather tiresome about that, um, but uh, but I think it's true that it was the the turning point, um, and then he returned, you know, to economics via the State Department, getting involved in Marshall Plan and and the reconstruction of Germany. Um, he was he was important there, and and forty eight he left uh, he st- he started MIT, and so that was his second career then starting at MIT, and he really had to retool because he had been away from from if you're if you're following the dates he'd been away from from the academy really for twelve years he'd been in public service, um, and uh, so he had to get going again, um, and uh, and and he and he did at, at MIT, and he was always grateful that they took a risk on him taking somebody like that, um, and. Uh, and I suppose you could say he took a risk on them too, because MIT wasn't really much of anything um, at that time. Um, Samuelson was there, um, and uh, but Solo wasn't there yet. It, it certainly was not the powerhouse that it became later, and uh, and so he grew up with MIT. So I, so you ask about this WASP background, his importance. I think the importance for a life that was very disrupted, okay, was that he had a lot of self-confidence and and resilience um and um the he and i think he felt that he was you know he was part of the american establishment in some way so that he was comfortable even if he had no money you know he did not feel that, that he was oppressed and he liked people you know maybe that's another kind of he he liked socializing and um, he he once pondered. He said he 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 likes people more than more more than he does like books and ideas. And and I think that is kind of true. Um, and held him back maybe a little bit. But he turned it into a uh, an asset because he wrote stories, you know, in economic history and 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 stories for people, stories that people like to hear. You know, a lot of his later work when he became an economic historian after he was uh, mandatory retirement in 1976. Um, that uh, big book of his international finance essays is is a lot of these are are you know festive entries or or you know keynote speeches or things like that. So they're they're talking they're talking to people um, instead of academic articles in which you're dotting every i and crossing every t and putting all the footnotes in and citing all the proper people. And so it's it was a different kind of a life. I hadn't really I hadn't really thought about that. I mean, I make a point of it. I think it's important, but I hadn't really tracked it. I'm making up some of this in conversation with you, but I think it's all in the book. 
um, you read the book, so you, you, I'm not telling you things that are new to you. Um, I'm just trying to follow that that thread. So now you're going to ask, am I a wasp? Okay. And because you, you started this with similarities. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I suppose that's true, um, The uh, that I am too. I did not grow up, however, with his self-confidence, um, probably because my own family finances fell apart a decade earlier, so I was I was I was eleven, um, in, instead of instead of twenty one. Okay, so um, the experience, my my formative experience of the of the world, um, was in the seventies um, of the United and uh, when I was eleven in nineteen seventy. Okay, um, and uh, so that was uh, that was pretty bad time to be alive. Made me into an economist, I suppose. But you mentioned the money view. So the let me just follow up on that. Um, one of the reasons that I wanted to do Kindleberger is he is a key currency guy. Okay, he followed sort of John H. Williams, who was at Harvard and was vice president at the New York Fed when he was there. And I, I had a sense. I told you I wanted to teach myself international finance, and so I had to find a teacher. And Kindleberger is the one I found. And. I really do think that the key currency approach, which is a minority approach and has always been, is the international version of the money view. That's the point. Okay, that the money view that I had been trying to put together for 15 years, um, as I said, it was filmed in the in 2012, um, and that's when I then started to write this book. The international side, I really didn't know very much about. Um, I was those lectures on the international stuff uh, were pretty preliminary in that course. Um, so I've spent 10 years learning about it now. And that's the main thing that I have to update in in the class. But it was I, everything I learned about international finance, I kind of learned from Charlie. And so that's, and that key currency view is, which is completely absent in the MOOC. I think I don't mention it at all. I, I, I even think maybe I didn't know about it. <laughs> I didn't know of its existence. Um, so uh, that's sort of shameful to say, but because I did think of myself as being really very well educated in the history of American monetary economics. Um, so I knew of some of the people, James Angel, for example, who was Charlie's um, thesis supervisor at Columbia, Okay, was actually a student of Alan Young. So Alan Young is the first guy I did in my first book that you asked about. His student, James Angel, was Charlie's uh, thesis. So in a way, Charlie is is a grandson of Alan Young following through. And Angel was a favorite student of, of Alan Young, as a matter of fact. And so he there is a direct uh, intellectual uh, con connection connection there. And so it's not surprising that the um, that that I can I can integrate Kindleberger into my previous understanding of the monetary world. That's what I'm doing in my courses right now. You you mentioned in the intro that I'm teaching it at the Pardee School. Um, I I took that job five years ago after 30 years in Manhattan, and I guess you're still in New York. So the uh, uh, and I still have a life in New York, um, but the it seemed to me that in order to do international finance sort of properly, I needed to get out of the beating heart of it and understand what the rest of the world is. And so party school is really a lot about the problems of the global south. And we just had a conference about debt sustainability in the global south and the kinds of problems that are happening. Uh, and so these and the kind of call for de-dollarization, all that stuff. Um, I don't think I would have really engaged with that if I had stayed in in 
New York. But here, it's these are central topics, and so it's very exciting to keep to keep pushing the ball forward, um, or maybe I should say, rock up the hill, Sisyphus. Um, and uh, uh, so I'm having a I'm having a second career in a way, you know, after thirty years in one. Um, Instead of being forced to retire at mandatory retirement, I actually can stay in academia um, and have a third, have a second career. With, with uh, you know, talking about about Charlie's second career, MIT in many ways was his his second career, his first career being public service. Yeah, yeah. public service. Um, yeah. And you know, w- when he gets to MIT, um, you know, you, you mentioned that it wasn't necessarily uh, you know the department that that it that it would later become. Uh, you know, and how how did Charlie fit in with the rest of the economics department there, uh, and how did his views uh, in you know, how did his views and uh, approaches differ from most of the others? Um, well, as I say, when he first came, there wasn't much of an economics department, so um, he was a backbone of it. Um, and for the first, I think I mentioned in the uh, somebody counted up, he he supervised like half of the theses. Um, and then Bob Solo was hired almost soon after him, and Bob Solo hired basically supervised the other half. You know, so the first ten years of the department was a small number of people. There were also some political scientists there, and it was a general social science department. Um, and as a service department for the engineers, the kids at, at MIT, um, and Samuelson's textbook, which was published in I think forty eight, um, was uh, was 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 written for those students. How how do you how do you teach economics to engineering students? Well, by making it look like engineering, I guess. And that was not Charlie's approach at all. You know, he's coming from this American institutionalist tradition. And uh, he wound up writing his own textbook, um, International Economics. Um, I think really sort of push and pull um, the uh, push because he uh, lost his security clearance in this McCarthy period. So he was unable to have this job with that he really imagined he was going to have with continuing on with the stuff he was doing at the State Department and and advising the the Marshall Plan and 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 so forth. Um, he was unable to to continue there, and and he needed some money because he had four children, um, and MIT took a cut in pay to go to MIT. So, the um, he wrote textbooks. So he he wrote the international economics textbook, and I, so that's push. I think pull. He I told you he was sort of retooling and trying to get up to speed on you know what had international economics become in the in the twelve years since he had last paid paid attention to it. So he had to do that work anyway. So he might as well turn it into a textbook. Um, and so he did. Um, he was always a very uh, fast worker, um, uh, maybe too fast in the sense that the first the first edition had so many errors in it, um, and uh, the students had to correct it all in the second edition. Um, and uh, but he it went through many editions, um, and uh, so he was. I I think that the original faculty of at MIT, very much respected him, and 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 even really loved him. I think he was, um, and uh, they didn't understand him maybe because he was a different kind of economist. He was not, he was not running to the chalkboard and writing down equations. Um, and so, how do you think if you aren't running to the chalkboard and running it? And so, I think his process was a little opaque. They couldn't really understand what he was about. But he seemed like he knew stuff, you know, and and had and had insights that were unavailable to people who thought, you know, 
you need to start with ISLM and uh, uh, and then uh, and then do and then ring the changes on that and so that's sort of how post-war economics got built. So as time went on and post-war economics got built, he became sort of more and more out of step with with that because he stayed who he was. He stayed who he was even as economics changed away from him. Um, and the new crop of graduate students who came in when MIT decided to make a push to be the top department, um, they were all, they they were mostly a little dismissive of this old guy who seemed like a has-been and he's occupying a seat that really should belong to one of them. And so um, he got a little, you know, pushed out, I would say. They did a festival for him in 1971. He's only 60 years old. So the, uh, uh, thanks very much for your service, Charlie. Um, and uh, I'm older than that. So I feel what that must have been like. Um, and that's what he began making, trying to find another audience. And I think the economic historians became that other audience that he, uh, the um, that book, um, uh, World in Depression, which is his story about what caused the Great Depression. It's also sort of autobiographical because he grew up in the Great Depression. And so he was interested in what caused the Great Depression. He dedicates it to his father, who, I mean, so this is personal. His father lost all his money. You know, his family finances were destroyed by the Great Depression. So through no fault of his own. So that's something that he wants to understand. And the reception of that book, I think, showed him that there was a future audience um, outside of MIT. And so when he was forced to retire in 76, it actually opened up a whole world and he was free to have a third career, <laughs> uh, which, as, as you mentioned, as a, some, some, something, something of an economic historian, he, you know, was he an economic historian? He always said he was a historical economist, um, not an economic historian, because he never went into the archives. He never dug up new facts. Um, I, I, the way I understand him really, um, is that what he was doing as an economic historian is more or less the same thing he was doing as an intelligence officer um, in the OSS, um, which is just, you know, gather all the intelligence, all of it, you know, interviews with prisoners and, and, and photographs and all of it, read it all, and then say, what does it add up to? You know, where are the Germans building those bombers? Um, and tell the generals, and hopefully they'll go and bomb them. And uh, that's basically the style he was as, as an economic historian. He's depending on actual economic historians as sort of field agents doing the research, finding the raw data, bringing it to him, and then he's sifting it through in order to in order to find out what the actual story is. Um, and then he develops this method as an where he's not. You know, his, la his last book before he died, it was a collection of his greatest hits, and it's called, titled Comparative Political Economy. So he actually, I think, thought of himself, as, came to think of himself as a comparative political economist. And that's because he's comparing hist histor historical narratives um, across time. Same country here, same country 100 years later, and also across countries. Same, same, how did different countries respond to the shock of the United States wheat's harvest entering the world market? You know, that that's actually one of his first forays into economic history. And he sees this as a way of doing economics, as a way of finding out what, what are the dependable economic laws 
Um, and there are maybe not very many of them, but they're, they're maybe very deep and we can build on those foundations instead of shaky foundations like utility curves and production functions and things like that, which are, which are, art of, which are created from, they, they don't kind of exist in the world they're, they and they, and, and so you can create some pretty rickety structures. Um, so he's looking for robust economic laws, um, and, uh, in his second, in his third career outside of academia, well, he was still teaching at at Brandeis and at Middlebury and so forth. Um, but he's outside of MIT, and so he can he can do whatever he wants, right? He's he's uh, and and he does. He takes advantage of the independence that comes um, after sixty five, um, and continued to and continued to write basically up until just a few years before before he died, um, and uh, that's. Um, that's that story. Something that that seems uh, very you know clear throughout is that he was always uh, for the even if his, he was very interested in history, he was always engaged in present day issues. Uh, and you know one of one of the most uh, important things at, at his time was that you know he saw the the establishment of the Bretton Woods Agreement and eventually the the collapse of the uh, of the uh, gold uh, backed dollar. Uh, and I'm I'm wondering you know what did Charlie think about the Bretton Woods Agreement? And then maybe as like a sort of a second question uh, for for listeners. Because I'm sure this is what some might be thinking is, you know, what did he think of Robert Triffin's famous critique? The key currency view, um, which Charlie would have imbibed, maybe not so much from Angel, but certainly from when he was at the New York Fed under under Johnny H. Williams, sees the dollar system emerging from business practice already. Okay, already in the 20s, even. Okay, and the and and central bankers are seeing this and trying to manage the transition from a sterling standard pre World War One, which seems to have been come to an end, um, and to manage that transition to the to the dollar standard system, um, as early as 1933, the World Economic Conference. So Charlie knew all about that, and and then, and he was hired by the New York Fed really to backstop the tripartite agreement of 1937. So the um, the which was to stabilize sterling against the dollar. Um, so that's in his mind. In and so from his, from that point of view, what Bretton Woods did in 1944 was to sort of bless the emerging dollar standard system. Um, it wasn't sort of creating from the head of Zeus, you know, this international monetary system that that is we're we're designing. It wasn't designed, okay. It was it it was Darwinian evolution, institutional evolution that created it. And Bretton Woods is 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 really a moment when the countries are all recognizing this that that is the way the post war order might look. Remember that Bretton Woods was uh, held right after D Day, really shortly after D Day, when Charlie is on the continent with Brad Bradley. So he was not there. He's not paying attention to that. He's still trying to win the war. Okay, and the uh, uh, that's uh, that's important. Um, whereas Triffin, who's almost exactly his contemporary, um, had spent the war basically at the New York Fed, um, and so the he was on. He was there. He wasn't at Bretton Woods, but he immediately um, joined the new IMF that had been created, um, and at which he imagined was supposed to was created by these ministers as the new world world central bank. And so that's almost exactly the opposite of of Charlie's frame. And so they would they were inevitably going to tangle. Okay, um, and that tangling. Um, 
happened, I think, actually repeatedly, although not very publicly, um, almost immediately, because Charlie certainly never thought, you know, what, what Triffin thought was that the U.S. had agreed to let the IMF be the central bank. And the U.S. never thought they agreed to any such thing. Um, and that, in fact, the key currency idea is instantiated in the Marshall Plan, you know, in in unilateral actions by the by the leader, by the United States um, and in and the recon reconstruction of, of Europe to integrate the European economy with with the United and also the Anglo-British loan that happened too, um, which Charlie was a part of. He was at the State Department when that when that happened. So so he sees the the, the construction of the international monetary system as 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 happening along international along key currency lines, and and it's working. So when Triffin comes along in the late fifties, he spends most of the fifties actually in Europe building the European payment system and so forth. Um, and uh, and when Triffin comes along and says. Oh no! There's this dilemma that, in fact, national currencies cannot be international reserves. Really, we need the IMF to do this, and there's this fundamental problem that uh, uh, a a a national currency, um, in order to get lots of it in circulation, the country has to run deficits, and of course, that makes the country weak. And so, this is not sustainable. Um, and Charlie thought it's perfectly well sustainable that that's exactly how the sterling system worked in the 19th century um, with the center in London, and that there's no reason why the dollar system can't work with its center in New York, um, and that that's what the bankers are trying to build, and uh, and why don't we just let them get on with it? You know, but the so he was upset that Triffin's ideas got picked up by President Kennedy and 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 in fact economists more generally, um, and so there was all this effort to basically keep New York from from being the bond market for Europe and keep and 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 create um barriers to capital flows in and out. Um and and ultimately 1971, um Nixon took took the dollar off gold and and then 1973 embraced flexible exchange rates. So the politicians killed the dollar system, you know, or tried to kill it. Okay. And the economist gave them aid and sucker. And that was that was bad. <laughs> he was he was was upset about that, and particularly because he feared that the that the that nineteen seventy one was a parallel to nineteen thirty one, when when sterling went off gold, and the result was a Great Depression. Okay, in this case, the dollar went off gold, and the result was the Great Stagflation. Um, so it was it was inflation, not deflation. Um, but it was a pretty rocky time, um, as I've mentioned that my formative years. Um, and was only put back together again, you know, but the Volcher, Volcher shock in 1979, you know, which for youngsters like you, you don't remember double digit interest rates. You remember a decade of ZERP and zero interest rate policy. So the, uh, and we're moving away from that right now. So um, you, you, you watch uh, what's, what's going to happen. So he was definitely following uh, current events and using what he, so and again, that's like this intelligence analyst sort of model. Like you're you're using what you know, everything you know, you know, all the data you know, all of the, in order to try to give the best advice you can to the generals. Okay, and that's what he was trying to do. And he gave them the best advice he could, and they ignored it. And so that about the about the dollar I'm, I'm talking about here, um, and uh, and they ignored it. Um, but that didn't mean he stopped 
you know, he was a loyal American and that meant not going along to get along, okay, but continuing to be a pain in the ass and saying, you know, I really don't think that's such a good idea, you know, and looking for an opportunity, looking, looking, how can I find uh, an ear that might be willing to listen or so that when, you know, when uh, the economist's infatuation with flexible exchange rates met the reality of flexible exchange rates and it didn't work out all that great, you know, that created an opening for him. Okay. And so those those books on uh, the, the essays on international finance, international money um, became possible, okay, because he got an audience. Um, and the economists even ultimately embraced him. They elected him president of the American Economic Association. Remember, he, he was an outsider. Um, and so I, that all came as a big surprise to him. Um, but I think it was the economists recognizing that, you know, Charlie was actually kind of right about some stuff. And we didn't really, we didn't really listen to him. Um, I think they, you know, it was hard to listen to him because he was not speaking the language of standard economics. Um, and, uh, the, uh, but it's, it was not hard for me to listen to him because I had already, in, you know, been in the American institutionalist world. Um, so as far as I could, I could kind of understand him. So my job in this book was to kind of, I am a modern economist. I have a, a, a standard PhD and the, uh, so I can translate. I can be the one who can translate from, from and, and, and that's what I kind of do in the book, I hope, is to make these ideas accessible, point out the way in which they are the international extension of the money view and uh uh so that at a at a time really like now when we're having eyes are turning to the future of the international monetary system here are some ideas from the past that that maybe are newly relevant um that you might want to if you picked up kindleberger you know something he wrote you would probably not have an easy time really understanding it um so let me help you okay i've read everything that kindleberger ever wrote which is a lot, a lot. So I have distilled it in. Uh, so you don't have to, um, or you, or, or you can let me direct you to particular, particular books or particular, uh, particular papers, and uh, and 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 then go back to the original um, uh, as 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 you like. Um, and uh, uh, I think it is very important to pay attention to events and to use what you know to try to learn you know what as a test of your knowledge too like if 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 my theory is any good i should have something to say that is relevant you know in the in the in the modern period um and uh that's what i think anyway so i don't think economics is is a purely academic discipline it should be talking about events things that are happening now and should be constantly tested um uh, against them um in my classes, I mean, it sounds like you you dipped into the the online course. You know that in my classes, economic and money and banking, I begin every single lecture with an impromptu lecture on some article in the FT that day, the Financial Times that day. I created that push pull. You know, one was I thought the students seem to like this; it gets them to class on time. Um, uh, but the other is that it's a discipline for me that it forced me. You know, frankly, in class in years in years when I'm not or semesters when I'm not teaching that class, I don't read the FT every day. 
because I'm not thinking, what article am I going to use today? So it's actually a good intellectual discipline to force you to use what you're teaching to make sense of the of what's happening right now, breaking news right now. Um, and uh, you know, when when the global financial crisis was breaking, okay, breaking news in in the fall of 2007, you know, I was reading the FT and talking about it, and that's a lot of my work comes out of that. Then distilling that, and uh, uh, I don't, I don't, I didn't learn that so much from from Kindleberger. That really came from Minsky, because um, I I knew Minsky read the financial press every day and was always commenting on it. And I thought, you know, that's that would be a good that would be a good practice for me, since I don't actually live in a bank. I'm not, you know, I'm kind of distant from this world, so I need to find sources. <laughs> Who will tell me what's happening in this world, um, and and allow them to influence what I write and what I think and what I teach? You, you talk about how um, you know Charlie uh, seemed to have in the book. You say not necessarily explicitly laid down what his kind of ideal uh, global economic system would would look like, but you, you're trying to sort of tease out uh, what it is his kind of goals or what the aim aim for. You mentioned use that phrase Darwinian evolution. Uh, to sort of describe, you know, his sense that there was a direction that the global financial system was heading towards, and that his role was to kind of help shepherd it along. Um, so, you know, what type of global monetary system do you think that Charlie was envisioning um, ultimately? Oh well, he was definitely envisioning a global dollar system, um, and uh, the uh, meaning that the dollar is would be the uh, medium medium means of payment. Um, and the international currency, so that when you're running a balance of payments deficit, um, it's dollars, okay, that you have to you have to come up with. Um, and the uh, and he thought that that would be a good system. You know, as as I repeat from the beginning, that this isn't about dollar hegemony. You use the word hegemony. It's really about key currency. That that there is a there, there's a kind of public goods aspect of that. That having a unified global monetary system is good for everybody um, in the same way that having a unified monetary system inside the United States is good for everyone. It is a hierarchical system, um, and that makes the people who are in the periphery sort of discontent with it. Um, and uh, and not even the distant periphery, okay? Certainly, France was not happy with, with uh, the role of the dollar. Um, and the... Uh, uh, and and periodically there are there are uh, problems like this. So the political challenge of global money is serious because the nation state is not glo- is 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 where government happens is where is where politics happen and the Westphalian kind of image that all all politicians sort of have like my country is a sovereign country and it's just as good as your country and so that is. That that rubs a little. That that means that the global dollar system rubs a little little badly. Okay, and why isn't my currency treated with respect or something? And the the and the the answer, okay, is that money is is really kind of a business thing. Okay, that it emerges from the behavior uh, from from the choices that banks and 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 business and and global and global corporations make. Um, so. What kind of system did he? It's important to I think to appreciate that his image of the problem of the global system emerging from World War II 
was very much influenced by Alvin Henson's stagnation hypothesis. Okay, some notion that the global north was kind of washed up. You know, they were mature economies. Um, the U.S. had been a very dynamic economy. It had been a developing a developing country um, for a long time, but now it was old. Okay, and Europe is even older. And so, where is the engine going to be for the global economy? And it's going to be the global south. That's what he thought. That's what Hansen thought. Um, and so that is a challenge for the international monetary and financial system. Like we can run the Tennessee Valley Authority sort of inside the United States as an anti-depression measure uh, for developing the underdeveloped parts of the United States. What we need to do is to run the analogy to that, the analog to that globally. Okay. Which, uh, but but how do you do that? You know, because it's not one government. Um, so that's why he and his friends always viewed the World Bank as the more important creation at Bretton Woods, more important than the IMF, because this is about capital flows. This is about development, um, public funds, okay, but hopefully just like the Tennessee Valley Authority, sort of creating the conditions that would attract private investment later later on. Um, and uh, so and he thought that was important for the United States, you know, that we need a global engine of growth. Um, and so we should help we should help the development ambitions of the global south. It's good for us, okay, and good for others too. But there again, you run into political problems. You know, that means that would mean allowing the global south to undercut, you know, domestic producers um, and therefore forcing you to le let those businesses go, you know, and, and, but of course the, they're all, those businesses have congressmen okay, and those congressmen vote for tariffs. And so there is a challenge to building that idea. Uh, and uh, the, he didn't live really to see much in the way of global capital flows. He, he kind of imagined for a while that the that the multinational corporation might be a vehicle for this, um, but that proved not so much to be the case um, for for capital flows because the multinational corporation is largely financing its glo its foreign operations domestically in those countries. Um, so there's not really that much, or what looks like capital flow is tax evasion. He would probably see today. Um, the uh, uh, I, maybe maybe that was happening then then too. Um, the big challenge is getting private capital flow to go, and so uh, I think he would be very interested in the fact that since the global financial crisis of two thousand eight nine, um, the growth in dollar credit globally has largely been in the global south, because we had zero interest rate policy in the north. And 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 new regulation and balance sheet repair for about a decade. So there there has not really been aggregate credit expansion in the north. It's all been in the south, basically for the first time in history. So the this is fifty years after he was pushing such a thing. Um, but it, so maybe it was Darwinian evolution. You know that that eventually. The world found its way toward this thing, um, but it couldn't be planned, um, and the political obstacles could be overcome, but not by politicians, you know, by a global financial crisis, and and other mechanisms. So, so you know, evolution works in mysterious ways, um, and it's uh, it's not something that you can particularly plan, um, but you can watch it and 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 then notice it in retrospect and say, look at that. Now look at that. Uh, 
And uh, we're testing all of this. You know, this is an expansion to the global south. And all the debt sustainability problems that are emerging right now are the way that the system says, okay, what parts of that were a good idea and what parts of that were not a good idea. Um, and I think that it will, however, be a part of the future. It's not going to go away. Okay. It's just going to shift gears and maybe maybe be more directed or 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 more cautious or I don't know what um, there, but it's not going to, I think this is a part of our future is the is the globalized dollar system um, that is now integrating the global south more. Most of Charlie's life was about integrating Europe. <laughs> um, and and then to some extent Asia was was and and the Asian financial crisis and so forth. but but now it really is the the global south more generally. and uh, and he would, I think, see that as a as a good thing, um, a natural evolution of the system. Um, and something to be not fought against, but encouraged and and managed, because of course it's not good for all people, and and it's it's change is hard, and so and socially hard, and so it's not he's not a he's not a laissez-faire guy really, you know, at all. Um, he but but neither is he a planning guy, so that means that he's a little hard to pigeonhole in the sort of. Uh, I don't know right left spectrum um where that that is na- is the normal political debate um and but that's what makes him interesting as a as a thinker I think yeah yeah I, yeah, I think that's absolutely true and it, it it comes through and I think it's it's one of those it's a useful book to read just for for anyone who finds themselves you know maybe caught up in that in that binary like what's you know what's the uh you know for for economic students who are trying to figure out whether or not they're uh, they're going to go uh, Milton Friedman or Karl Marx. You know, they can. Charlie offers a, a, a different path, uh, and sort of picking up. But you know, going to to that. You know, one thing that we haven't uh, discussed, but I think is the thing that people probably know Charlie for most uh, is his work on on panics and crises. Uh, is his work as a as a as you put it, not an economic historian, but a historical economist. Uh, so you know, if if you could just uh, you know, in for for my for my final question. Uh, you know, talk a little bit about how he thought about economic crises. You know, the, the Great Depression. What what was uh, the work that he was doing there? Why did why devote his life, the, the end of his life, to to really studying these these topics? Well, maintenance of panics and crashes um, is in fact his best known book. It's now coming out in an eighth edition, so it uh, it it has survived longer than he did. Um, and the uh, but I think it's a misunderstood book. Um, it's often understood as kind of like, oh, here are these really exciting list of exciting uh, events that isn't this isn't this fun to to like catalog them, and uh, that's not what he was trying to do. Okay, he was trying in this book to affect economics. Okay, to say here's a phenomenon. Okay, that is nowhere in your models. Okay, that is everywhere in the actual world. Okay, so that maybe suggests that we should have uh, have make some advances in economic theory, and it is everywhere. So that is to say, there seems to be something economically law-like about this, you know, that it is fundamental to the way the system works. Um, And so here was his basic idea that, and I think it was really mostly his idea. He hangs it on Minsky. But if you compare him with Minsky, it's, this is, and you've read everything that Charlie wrote before that, you recognize this is continuous with, 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 
with him. Um, and he's just looking for allies, really, you know, to that's why he pretends to hang it on his on, on Mitski, actually, I think is that he's he's looking for allies, which he could could use some. So this book was published in 1978. Okay. And it is really a follow on from the depression book, which was published in 73. Okay. Where the depression book is about two, two basically crises. Um, 29 and 31, so the the stock market crash and the sterling and sterling devaluation in 31, two successive crashes that proved to be too much for the international monetary system to absorb. Now he goes back and he looks at all the ones he can find, okay, and he notices a sort of pattern that seems to be general, okay, which is that something comes along that is he calls a displacement. Um, it's often a war. Okay, where suddenly there's a lot of pressure to do things differently. Um, old ways aren't going to be enough. You need to win the war, and and money flows in different directions. Um, and then maybe after the war, there's a reparations, and so money flows in another direction. So there's some big displacement that gets going, and once it gets going, it feeds on itself, and it and 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 it, and it creates a kind of asset bubble. Um, that feeds on itself and and until it burns out, okay? And then it's a little bit of a collapse. And a lot of that on the way up, this is about monetizing credit. So it's an expansion of money um, as well as credit. And so on the way down, everyone is fleeing for the exits. Um, and, and, the, and the key thing there is what kind of international lender of last resort is there to, is, is there in order to prevent this from, from, continuing to build on itself on the way down. And that's that's the main idea, that the world needs an international lender of last resort, and that for the present purposes, that's got to be the Fed. Okay, But how can it be the Fed? Because the Fed is only supposed to care about the United States and not about the rest of the world. So that's a political challenge for the United States, but it's also a political challenge for the rest of the world to let the Fed be the leader and to be the follower. So this was a critique of economics. This is a critique. It, it was a much more in his mind, a much more uh, contribution to economic theory, um, not just uh, a lot of fun stories. Um, and if you read it that way, you will see that that is what he intended. But but most people don't read it that way. They they um, and then he and then he followed that up with with what he thought of as his magnum opus was a financial history of Western Europe, which is I think of a treat as a treatise on money. Um, so the the three big history books. World in Depression, Manies, Penis, and Crashes, and 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 uh, Financial History of Western Europe um, are a package. Okay, these are the product of his third career, and I think they are, they they tell a kind of unified a unified message. Um, if you can get a used copy of the first edition of Manies, Panics, and Crashes, um, which I had and which I used in the book. I did not read the later editions because some of those, there were co-authors and they, they got changed after he after he died and passed it on. Um, and so I'm interested in following Charlie. So I'm following that. But they're, they're, uh, I have now spin off, spun off I've now read all the rest of the editions, and I've written a little paper about what happened to that, you know, and how did that how did that book get to be kind of misunderstood? Um, and there's going to be lots more spinoffs, uh, Caleb. Let me, but believe you me, this is uh, there's a lot on the cutting room floor here, and so I'm I'm going to be doing spinoffs for a while, even as I begin my fifth book, um, which hopefully I will I will survive long enough to produce. It takes me a while to produce these books. And it, it, it definitely tell that I was, you know, we were talking earlier. The, the research in this is 
you know, it's very, there's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of citations all throughout. Um, it's very clear that you, uh, you spent a lot of time uh, with the man. Uh, do, do you mind if I ask what, what the fifth book is, what you're working on? Oh, I mentioned it before. Um, I'm, I'm basically, uh, taking the, the, uh, e- the MOOC, the economics of, oh, right. money, right. of money and banking, um, which was filmed in 2012. And so therefore kind of stuck in history right back then. Um, and when I didn't know any international finance and, and lots has happened since then, you know, since 2012. And so it's time to update that. And I think to turn it into a book, um, not, not, not another MOOC, um, but, but, but a book. So, so I've been working through that with my class here, here at Boston University, and I've got lots of ideas on what needs to be, needs to be done, uh, to that. Um, and, uh, and I'm going to start working on it just as soon as I grade my finals. Well, good, good luck with that. I'm looking forward to, to reading it, uh, someday. Um, me too. Yeah. <laughs> well, Perry, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. It was, it was great to speak with you about uh, Money and Empire, Charles B. Kindleberger, and the dollar system. Uh, I recommend people go and check it out. Thanks, Caleb. This is fun. 